Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. In 1972, the year I was born, there was apparently a famous TV ad for Geritol. My guest today describes it thus, quote, a husband spoke to the camera while his wife draped herself over his shoulder, smiling like something between a model and the brainwashed resident of a creepy commune. My wife's incredible. She took care of the baby all day, cooked a great dinner, and even went to a school meeting. And look at her, end quote. Her potion of eternal youth is, of course, Geritol. It's got all the vitamins and iron she needs. This perfect woman grins silently at the camera as her husband concludes, My wife, I think I'll keep her. Though what constitutes getting old for women in America has been a moving target throughout our history, it has rarely been a picnic. But our history is also full of women who have raised hell and pushed back in a hundred different ways against the cultural and literal corsets America keeps trying to stuff them into. My guest today is New York Times columnist and celebrated author Gail Collins. Her new book is No Stopping Us Now, A History of Older Women in America. It's a bumpy, often exhilarating ride through the lives of older women in America from colonial times up to the present day. And Gail's good company as our wise, wisecracking stagecoach driver. We're headed west, and there's hope on the horizon. Welcome to Think Again, Gail. Thank you. It's great to be here. Maybe we can start with pants. Pants? Maybe beginning with bloomers. <laughs> I thought that might be a nice entree. That's a very interesting entree. <laughs> no one has ever done that to me before. Let's start with pants. Yeah, I mean, it's the fact that women were not comfortable in the clothes they wore was a really limiting thing. And the whole idea was really to make sure that you couldn't go wandering off by yourself or something. And so you had in middle-class America, for most of our history, women wearing these long, heavy, incredible 14 pounds of material dragging around on them, right. uh, trying to get around, and corsets and everything else. And the whole idea was that they should be uncomfortable. And um, people once in a while rebelled. The Bloomer Rebellion was one of those things. Around when? Like... It happened around uh, the, the late 1800s, it first began. I mean, the idea was you wore these things like a Turkish harem girl or something. Right. And they weren't, they didn't show off your figure. So it, they weren't immoral. Do you but, happen to know if there was literally a Turkish influence there or whether that's. I a, don't think so. I okay, mean, right. I, I think that Amelia Bloomer was the first uh, one who okay. came up with them. But okay. I, I, maybe she did. Maybe she was mulling it. I can't say. <laughs> Gosh. But anyway, they tried it and it was horrible. People threw things at them in the street when they wore them in the street. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was sure she was going to do it, good God in heaven, did it for about a week. And then her sons wrote to her and said that they would have to leave high school, for God's sake, because everybody's <laughs> making fun of them because of these bloomer things. And it just did not work at all. And, uh, and if Elizabeth Cady Stanton can't do it, like, nobody do can, because really. she really, really didn't. I mean, she kind of did what she wanted. I would love to tell you a great Elizabeth Cady Stanton <laughs> yes, please, story. Because please. Can I do it now? Yeah, she's a great <laughs> character in the story. We can, we can digress and we'll return. We'll come back to the yeah, pants yeah, other yeah, time. Yeah. Elizabeth Cady, my favorite story about Elizabeth Cady Stanton was part of the way that during our history, when it was very difficult to be a woman, women figured out in some cases that being older really worked out really well. It got right. you past 
all of the hysteria about, oh my God, this harlot woman speaking in public and all that sort of thing, she figured out that if she walked around with gray hair, looking as much like a grandmother as humanly possible, pointing out that she was a grandmother as much as humanly possible, that she could get away with almost anything. And she, at a time when women were not supposed to be allowed to speak in public at all, she was running around the country, taking trains, playing cards with soldiers on the trains, sleeping at night and railroad stations when she couldn't get any place else to go, doing everything she wanted to do. And right. her followers noticed this and they started writing things like an ode to menopause. This is, you know, this is where we're <laughs> going to be free. This is it. And that thought has actually been one of two sets of thoughts that we've been watching throughout our history. On the one hand, people led often by doctors, I must say, thought of menopause as the end of life for women. Right. You know, that, There's a lot of dangerous nonsense around menopause. Everything in, you in want to know about yeah. sex, but we're afraid to ask that famous book from a long time ago, discusses menopause very briefly as sort of the end, the castration of all women. That's the end right. of it forever. On the other hand, you have all these women saying, hey, <laughs> I don't have to get pregnant again. I'm not going to have to do all the stuff I've been doing. I can have a whole new life here. I can do things on my own. And We've seen lately in a lot of surveys that both men and women find middle age to be the best time of life. Right. They Still now. Yeah, yeah. Now. They really, you know, like middle age. It's, you know, and you, you can see, I mean, you're, you've done the stuff you're really supposed to do and you've still got stuff to do and uh, they really, really enjoy it. Assuming, and this is another kind of thread throughout your book, assuming that they are not, what would the negative word for beneficiary be, but the beneficiaries of social inequality, economic injustice, well, of course, assuming yeah. they're not in a situation yeah, where they're still really struggling at that age. You think about that with everything. One of the things that I find just so fascinating in the book and one of the real trends that we're seeing in this country is women working later and later in life, women working into their 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, I think it's right. like 18% of women in their 70s are still working. And most of those women are doing it because they want to work. And it's their life and it's fun and they do what they want to do. But some of those women are doing it because they don't have enough money otherwise. And that's a tragedy. So it's important to make that distinction that we're talking about two different worlds here. One of the things that I've noticed throughout your book is that there is kind of um, those women who are celebrated in the book for pushing back, for getting, taking extra space for themselves, you know, there is a kind of celebration of working as hard as you possibly can until the moment of your death. I mean, a lot of yeah. the heroines <laughs> of this book are exceedingly busy and productive and active, you know, and also compelled to do it yeah. for social reasons. And I thought, well, is there no place for <laughs> the older woman who simply wishes Let's to take a nap like, for play, Lord's sake. Yeah, yeah. play with her grandchildren? Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and um, uh, the problem is, it's really much harder for me, at least, to write about people who relax. <laughs> 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 I but I think they're happy anyway, so uh, they don't they don't need to be worried about um, and but. There is a lot of stuff in the book about grandmothers, mm. which the average woman becomes a grandmother at the age of 50. And now that's like a whole different vision of grandmotherism than we had back in the day. Sure. And there's a, there was first a real intensive effort in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s to make newspapers, for instance, stop referring to people as 
the grandmother judge. Or, right, you know, right, right. Or the murder victim, a grandmother. Right, where, as you yeah. point out in the book, if you would not, if you would not refer to a man as right. the grandfather such and such. Right. Or, yeah, and, and was the presidential candidate a grandmother? It doesn't happen now but in the same way it did back then. But you do have all of these women who are 50 years old and suddenly discover they are a grandmother and trying to figure out what you want to be called. Gwyneth uh, Paltrow's mom calls herself Woof. Woof. Bly- Blythe Danner, <laughs> the actress Blythe Danner. Yeah, yeah. Woof, Woof sounded reasonable. <laughs> I mean, you see what the kid says and, you know, pick that up. There was a movement for a while to call them glamas. Right. Which was... Sort of condescending and horrible. Really and awful in every way you can even imagine. <laughs> but it was they were pushing it there for a little while. I'm happy to say I kind of fell off the cliff. Yeah, it sounds like a brief, uh, short-lived social media meme kind of thing. <laughs> the brief social media life of Glamma. <laughs> My mother went with Nona because she she's Italian and, mm-hmm. and just didn't want to be grandma. I don't know that there was like a huge feminist push there. I think it was simply, no, it's just I don't want to be old. Yeah. I don't want to be considered old. You don't want to be called grandma sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But people like, you know, some people like their first names, you know, they just call you Betty or whatever. Right. That can work too. Yeah. So, I mean, let's go back to pants. The first time that they're worn in the house, I mean, not the home, but I mean, in Congress. Oh, in the house. Yes. I, you know, I can't remember either, but it was a big deal. Uh, it was a big deal in particular. They couldn't really do much to you. 1960 when, something, I think. Yeah. At I least, oh, it was yeah. even past that, yeah. I think. Once it happened, the, the thing was that the women who worked in the House and Senate, they could not wear pants either. And they're running around up and down the stairs doing all this stuff all day. And it was very, very, very important to them to be able to have more alternatives along that line. And um, Barbara Mikulski was a big leader right. in the pants movement, um, a, a big scrapper on that front. But um, during World War II, women who were in the Air Force were arrested from walking down the street wearing pants, which was their uniform, uh, <laughs> in um, someplace down south, I think it was. I mean, there was a very strong, the idea that women would wear pants yeah, it really was very it was a offensive. Point. And in fact, I wrote a book uh, a while back called When Everything Changed. And I began it with a moment in, I think it was around 70, when this poor woman went to traffic court in Manhattan to pay her a traffic ticket. And it wasn't even her ticket. It was her boss's ticket. She was a secretary. Right. She went in to pay it. And she was wearing slacks. And the judge threw her out of the courtroom. <laughs> for demeaning the courtroom. And the poor woman had to do something. So she called her husband, who was a chauffeur, and he drove over. And he came in and paid the ticket. And the judge gave him a lecture about how he had to be the head of the household if he kept doing this. It went on and on. There was a picture of her in the New York Times. She looked (laughs) very, very respectful. But that was the way it was thought. It was like it was an attack on everything, the way the world should work. It's astonishing. And then now here's Hillary Clinton getting nominated to be president wearing slacks. Well, and, and then pantsuit nation mm. becomes a thing. Yeah. I mean, even in our time, it's still like, like we're still paying attention to right. the pants. Right. <laughs> but less and less. If the next, if Elizabeth Warren gets nominated wearing pants, I don't think they'll talk about it quite as much I, as they did with her. I think so. that's right. I think that's right. You know, what's interesting is like the organs of control, how the mores are disseminated and enforced over time. Advertising is a big one. Mm. And I'd like to talk to you about that because there, there's a lot of painfully hilarious moments in the history of advertising and marketing that you touch on in the book. Geritol and hair dye and just the general torturing of women one way or another, emotionally, psychologically. I have to tell you that the book, when I started writing it, 
was called You're Not Getting Older, You're Getting Better, which right. was one of the most famous ads ever for hair dye. And then You're Getting Better sounded like a book about chemotherapy or something. It just didn't <laughs> sound quite right for what I was doing. So I dropped that, but I went back and read the entire ad, which I remember from when I was a kid. All I remember was, you're not getting older, you're getting better. And I looked into it, and it was like put to music. It's like the invasion of Dunkirk or something. It was just like, oh, my God, da, 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 da. It's so triumph. <laughs> and uh, I read the whole thing, and it starts out something along the line of, these days, once a woman is 25, she's old. And then then you can nice. do all this Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, about that. that was when I was 25. That was what was on TV. <laughs> oh, oh, my, my gosh, God. in heaven. When I was doing one of my other history books, I ran into an, a letter that the early colonists, men in the 1600s, sent back to England looking for wives. Right. And they said that what they wanted, their qualifications were, she should be civil and under 50 years of age. Oh, my God. So there's like this thing between under 50 years of age and 25, you're old. And now things have bounced back again. It's It's been a very up and down thing throughout American history when you're old. And if there's one constant thing that I found and learned, it's that... Places and times when women are regarded the same way men are as far as age is concerned, that you, know, you get older, you get distinguished. It's nice. You know, you don't want to die, but you know, you're coming right along. It looks good. It all has to do with the economy. Places and times right. when women were making money, were adding to the economy, nobody talked about how old they were. The colonial housewives made everything for the family. They had the chickens, they had the vegetable garden, they had they were making candles and butter and all this stuff, and they were also trading it with other colonial housewives in this little underground economy they had. So basically, and they were out in the fields too, helping. So they were supporting the family. They had all these skills that everybody admired, and nobody ever said, oh, you're looking a little old today. Everybody wanted to come and learn from them. The young women right. wanted to come and sit at their feet and learn all this stuff they knew that nobody else knew. And age was not an issue there at all. And you could build up a pretty respectable cottage industry, fortune even. Yeah, and also there were some women, who, of course, who were midwives, and they were out all night long, you know, until their 70s, some of them, tramping around and delivering babies and making money. It went on all over the place. It was, they had stature. They Nobody talked about them in terms of their age. But then people started, first of all, men started taking over some of these good businesses, right. like running taverns and delivering babies. And people moved to the cities. And if you were middle class in the city, back especially in the 1800s, there was nothing for you to do whatsoever except to have babies because you had lots of help. There were a lot of poor women available to do all of your cooking and cleaning and everything else. So you were down to nothing but motherhood. My one greatest example of that is Martha Washington, who I really like. I mean, I just something about Martha Washington's story really appealed to me. You know, she'd started out, she was a widow. She was running her first husband's business, which she really liked doing. Then she marries George. George takes over the business. Martha is then stuck entertaining something like 300 visitors a year at their home, right. some of whom stayed for months. And George always went up to the study after dinner. So she is stuck there talking to all these people all night long. She was a great wife, a great supporter. She was at Valley Forge with him. And as time went on and people thought about George Washington, they celebrated 
George Washington's mother. Yes, right. Because, she was like uh, almost uh, made into a saint. Yes, and you know, who could be better and greater in this land than George Washington's mother? George Washington didn't like his mother. <laughs> she was a very irritating woman. But Martha goes away, and it's George Washington's mother because the only role people can think about for women was motherhood. First ladies are another thread throughout the book and kind of how they evolve, devolve over time. The stuff about Eleanor Roosevelt is particularly interesting. Maybe we can talk a bit about what she what she means in this in the scope of the, the arc of this history. She kind of is a break in a way. There's nobody ever been a first lady like Eleanor Roosevelt. And at the time, nobody thought about wives as doing anything except the most wifely of things possible. You sat at home and you made dinner and stuff like that. And she was out all over the place. She traveled so much doing goodwill, visiting people, helping people, particularly poor people, black people, workers who are on strike. She was always there for them. More progressive than her oh, husband. Oh, way more yeah, than yeah. her husband. And bringing those stories back to him. She went off to, to war. She went to the South Pacific and to see the soldiers who were sick. She just never stopped. She did not like having the Secret Service with her. She liked to drive alone on these trips. Right. So they finally made her take target practice so she could carry a pistol with her. <laughs> so she's walking around with her pistol in her car going around doing all this stuff. She uh, just an amazing, amazing woman. And half the country just adored her. And half the country just could not bear to think about her all, at all, at all, at all. But she... Primarily because she's not fitting conventional totally not of in any way. Or, plus, or she's behavior plus or, she's got left wing opinions that I'm sure many of them disapproved sure. of. But there's that whole idea of this woman back in your face everywhere doing all this stuff, and it was it was a breakthrough. There's nobody like that again. Not even Hillary Clinton is like that. <laughs> I mean, with these fiercely independent women who really are just charting their own course, like her, Elizabeth Cady Stanton the Grimke sisters mm -hmm. you talk about, I love the who are sisters. wonderful. Yeah. yeah, How are they able, why are they able to resist the scorn of their times? They simply lack an amygdala. They don't have something fear. Of, like what, you know. It, it, you know, some of them you can track it back to something, oh, it's that mother or father yeah, yeah, yeah. or something. But some of them you think, how in the hell did the, the Grimkes are my favorite. They're, they're like a Civil War era, young women growing up in a very respectable family down the South, and they had slaves, and they're going and doing the things you're supposed to do if you're a young, respectable, middle-class woman down South. And then they decided it was all wrong. They just decided it was right. all wrong. They moved North. They began lecturing against slavery for abolition at a time when you got, if you lectured and you were young, you got things thrown at you, and things burned down around them, and they just came trotting on forward. And they just, and I thought, how did that happen? I could never find anything in their history, like some special moment that would have transformed them like that. Right, right. It's just, wow. And then, and then there's that amazing moment that you talk about where they're getting older by the standards of that, I think by any standards, mm -hmm. um, the standards of any time and not faring that well economically. And then they learn that they have, I don't know if it's Angelina who learns that they, she has a nephew or a distant relative black man living in the South. Uh, well, Angelina knocks me out to begin with yeah, yeah. because she's running around being this absolutely outrageous person that no respectable human being. <laughs> and, and she's not particularly attractive and she's out there getting beaten up and, you know, everything. And she, when she's in her 30s, she falls in love 
with an abolitionist named Theodore Welt, and they get married. And the whole world, even the abolition community, is agog. Oh, my gosh. She's in her 30s. She runs around giving speeches, and somebody falls in love with her. How did that happen? That's not supposed to work that way. Right. You're supposed to be sort of nun-like if you're going to do this and get away with it. But she did. And then much later on, after the war, um, one of them, I think it was Sarah, but I'm not sure, they were living together with Theodore. They had a little commune that they were living in, sort of hand-to-mouth up north. And uh, they heard about this guy named Grimke who was around, this black guy, and looked into it and contacted him. And he said basically, oh, yeah, uh, my mother was a slave in your brother's household, and he took her, and I was the result. So, yeah, I'm your nephew. And people found that stuff out a lot if you were a Southerner. Sure. It wasn't like a big shock. But normally then you say, oh, how interesting, and move on with your <laughs> yeah, life. Goodbye. But right. they said, our nephew, come to live with us. They brought him to their, they didn't have any money at all. And whatever they had, they saved up to send him to law school. Every cent that they had was devoted to sending their black nephew to law school. And he became a very prominent lawyer and said he owed everything to his aunts. And yeah. They are just, it's they knocked me out. Story. Yeah. They're among my favorites. There must have been lots of people that you had to leave out. I mean, how did you decide? The book is chock full of individual anecdotes, stories of heroines, ordinary women, et cetera. How did you go about deciding what who belonged? Well, some of them just pop in there. Yeah. <laughs> some are, you can't, you can't ignore. The Grimke sisters cannot go away. Yeah, and Elizabeth yeah. Cady Stanton cannot go away. But others just, you know, have their moment. And others I always knew had to be in there, like, you know, Ella Baker, the civil rights heroine. Uh, The reason I wanted her so much to be in there was that everybody thinks about the civil rights movement as young people sitting at counters, getting arrested, freedom riders and stuff like that. Right. But the civil rights movement, as we knew it, began first when the middle-aged Rosa Parks refused to move to the back of the bus. And then when the Montgomery bus boycott came from that, and suddenly people saw an entire community of black people refusing to take the buses, standing together, giving the world an idea that they were prepared to do anything for their rights. And that was all about middle-aged black women. These were the women who all along had been in the community, encouraging people to vote, running around, helping people who are in trouble, registering voters, doing stuff for the community, doing stuff for their churches. They knew everybody. They knew how to get people organized. And they did all the work. And no one acknowledged that. And Ella Baker, who was this amazing, amazing organizer, was running around throughout the South. She had asthma. She sat for 72 hours at a time sitting with college students who were working on civil rights projects, all of them smoking. And she's in there with her inhaler, just sitting there nodding, listening to them, helping them think things out. And her vision of the world, a world in which everybody could come together in peace to create equality, was the most gorgeous part, the whole civil rights right. movement. But nobody, <clears throat> none of the men like to give her any credit for it. Because as Andrew Young said, well, they remind us of our mothers, which is all very well, but it's a little bit too much right now. And also, the as the movements become more radical, as you point out in yeah. the book, in the later generation, the older, more kind of pluralistic, democratic, you know, let's talk about it, let's all get together, yeah. kind of reformers get shunted out. But even when they were gone, who did you think about? Martin Luther King. That's right. all everybody talked about. And Martin Luther King was not enthusiastic about having Ella Baker as an mm. official in the NAACP because mm. mothers, women, it's not the moment. The whole 
economic thing is so important to get. You don't get to where you really want to go with the story until women are as capable as men getting jobs, having careers, bringing home money, being right. a financial foundation of the family, being purchasers on their own and owning things, having assets. And that mainly started, along with everything else in the world, in the, <laughs> in the 1970s. You know, after World War II, we had this huge economic boom. II, yeah. And after that, during that boom, everybody got to thinking they could be middle class. You know, there was this vision suddenly that you could just, you would have a house when you, you know, when your kids could go to college, you would have vacations. Everybody obviously didn't make it, but that was the vision. And a ton of people did make it on one person's salary until the 1970s when the economy tubed, when we started to get a lot more competition from overseas in many of our businesses. And suddenly people realized you needed two salaries to support a family in a middle class manner. And then... The whole world was transformed. Little high school girls thinking about their future thought about who they were going to marry, and they also thought about what kind of job they were going to get. And I will never forget, I think it was way back in the 80s, I was somewhere in Connecticut, maybe New Britain, maybe a community college or a junior college, but it was a very working class neighborhood. Right. And um, I somehow wound up with this classroom of boys talking about women's history. I'm not quite sure how that all worked out, but they were very nice. <laughs> and then I asked them all what they thought they were looking for in a wife. And of course, they were not going to tell me an attractive woman. It was not going to happen. Sure. But <laughs> um, for a minute, they said, oh, personality is very important. And then somebody said, a good earner. And they all went, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, really important. I want a wife who's a good earner. I want somebody who'll be a partner with me economically. Yeah, And that's... That's the. That's it. That's the story. And the we saga. Have, we have an interesting moment now where we're seeing a lot. We're seeing the kind of traditional earner balance being significantly upended. Not only is there more parity, but you're seeing more and more families where, I mean, in hetero mm -hmm. couples, where the woman is the primary breadwinner, the man is spending more time at home. That's yeah. another shift, I think. You know, and I don't think it's going to lead to people thinking that men are getting older or faster. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not going to work out that way. But it's the idea of that kind of freedom. And again, right. this all presumes <clears throat> that you're middle class and that you can afford this stuff and you're not all desperately, you know, struggling and that half of the, the mothers out there are single parents and a lot of them are not getting any support at all from anybody. Right. So there's all those different stories. But the I'm, idea of a woman as being economically equal to men is the answer to all the questions about why women are regarded as aging faster than men. That's the answer completely. It seems not only that there's a nasty habit, but that there is a, a powerful momentum behind this need to define old age in women throughout our history mm -hmm. and to tell women what it is you can wear, what you can do, mm -hmm. what you're supposed to be, what corner you're supposed to sit in. It's part of the whole defining of women's role. If your role is to be a mom and to be a wife and your whole purpose basically is to be sexually attractive, then it's really damn important that you should look that way all the time. And once you can no longer bear children, you're, you're either... What are you for? What, you're not there for anything unless you're taking care of your grandchildren. Otherwise, you're sitting on a rocking chair someplace. That's all you've got. But then as all that changes, all that changes. And... 
I found it very useful to go back. I started 40 years ago at Gloria Steinem's yes, 40th birthday party. I knew party. you were going to get on the Gloria Steinem <laughs> right now. Yeah. It was perfect. It was her 40th birthday party. It was some little weenie weenie party. It was no big deal at all. And a couple of friends gave it for her. And um, somebody, as she was leaving, said, you know, you don't look like you're 40 or something along that line. And she said, this is what 40 looks like. She just met everybody, you know, take everybody as they are. And But... The thought that came out of it was, hey, Gloria Stein, well, nobody's ever going to look like Gloria Stein at 40 or any other age, but still, I mean, hey, 40 it, looks really good yeah, here. Yeah, you're not getting older, you're getting better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we finally figured that out. And then, you know, if you go on, your fifth, and then she had a 50th birthday party and the 60th birthday party, and at all these parties, she's getting more and more accomplished. She's doing more and more things. And I interviewed her right before her 80th birthday. And she had her 80th birthday party. And then she went to Botswana to ride elephants. I mean, she's, and she's still bumping right. around all over the place. So there's no defined thing that it's too old anymore. The question is not whether there is such a thing as getting old, but whether there's a special definition of what that means for women. For women. It's right now, I don't think people would be any more surprised to see a woman, say, running a store or writing a book or teaching a class at 75 or 80 than they would a man. What challenges do you still see? Again, this term older women is mm. fraught, but quote unquote older <laughs> women facing at this time. I mean, you talk a bit about plastic surgery and that's a tricky one. So maybe. Yeah. We can, and there's yeah. and the, the plastic surgery one is interesting because there, there, if you look at movies and TV, still the idea of lots of fun, exciting women in the age of 60 years old running around on... T There's not that many of them. You don't right. see any kind of equality when it comes to entertainment. Sure. And that's the great next leaping thing I think we're going to have to deal with at some point in time. We've had moments. There's been, yeah. you point out, Golden Girls and... Meryl Streep. M Meryl Streep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the exceptions that prove yeah. the rule yeah. or whatever, right? And I mean, and there's some change, but it's not, we haven't really gotten there at all. And so that's that's a place that we need to go still. Right. And And women also often argue that they need to have surgery or treatments to make them look younger for work because other women who are they're competing against are having treatments or surgery for work to look younger. And so they want to look as young as the other people that they're competing with. I guess it's tough to argue against. I mean, right. there are some jobs that for anybody looking younger is an advantage. News anchor, that comes up in News your book. News anchor, although, yeah. although we have do have some. You know, had Diane Sawyer there for quite some time. Right. We're running out of news anchors, period. <laughs> right down. We're running it. out of news. <laughs> <laughs> or we've got too much news. Too much news, <laughs> not enough real news. So there's lots, and there's some normal things that you just, if you look right now, this is amazing to me. Mm. Think about the current race for president. Right. We've got the top three contenders are all in their 70s. And actually, the one whose age is talked about least is Elizabeth Warren, the woman. Indeed. Yeah, uh, that's and, right. That's right. But you don't want... Although if she gets starts getting into debates with our current president, I'm sure age will come up. Although he's older than she is. I don't think he'll care about that fact. <laughs> I'm sure he will find a way to make age an issue regardless. Well, he's got so many things going on there. It's just really hard to know which way it will go. But yeah. when the Speaker of That's the House right. battle was happening, there was a lot of arguing among the Democrats when the Democrats took control of the House that... Uh, the speaker should be somebody younger, a new mm -hmm. generation, not Nancy Pelosi. And on one, 
it wasn't really ageism so much as it was, wait a minute, what about my turn? Right. And that's a problem everywhere, every place. It's a reasonable thing for people who have no prejudice against age simply to say, hey, what about me? I want to do it. Can I do it? Are you going to stay there forever? Can I please do it? And so they made a deal that she'd only stay on for another four years, and it worked out fine. And she's done, I think anybody would say, a spectacular job. Oh, God. What would we have done without her? No, I can't imagine (laughs) any of those people who wanted to take over doing it in any place near the way she's done it. So it's all worked out great. Right. But, and we need, we, we desperately need our Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. You know, we. Boy, we, she <laughs> must be the most popular person in the country now. I mean, it's amazing. She had to allow herself be, to be sort of cartoonized in a way, but, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and she, she had long said, I can't remember which justice she was referring to, but somebody who had retired at 84, and she would say, I'm going to stay on as long as he stayed on. And then suddenly she found another one who retired at 90, and she's now referring to him as her goal in life. But she's a pistol. It's just really um, amazing. And, and she's not only that she shows up. What amazes me about her is that she shows up for court and does her court stuff. But when she's not in court, she's running around the country giving speeches and right. stuff. It's just extraordinary energy. Right. It's not a, it's, there's no like overcompensation. She just, she's yeah. just, that's who she is. Yeah. She, yeah. And there are people like that around and they often become famous or accomplished because they've got all that energy. But going back to what you were saying about younger people telling older people to get out of the way, particularly in you know, the context of progressive social movements. Yeah. I think that's an interesting sub-theme in the book, like that time in the, I guess it's the 60s, don't trust anyone over, over 30, 30 yeah. right? The guy we, who made that up, by the way, came to regret it. <laughs> yeah, right, because he lived well past 30. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, just the way that there are tensions, we talk about intersectionality now mm-hmm. a lot, and like older women are dealing with both cultural difficulties around being female and mm-hmm. then also being considered older. But so you would expect solidarity within these movements, like between women, but in fact, you sometimes get tension. Sure. But I have to say, even back in the 60s and the 70s, when you weren't supposed to trust anybody over 30, the students who were leading that movement often had female teachers, female authority figures who they did trust. Sure. I I was thinking of Ella Baker, who I think you were talking about, kind of being rejected by some of the younger, more radical feminist black activists saying that, like, you're you're a compromiser, you're, you know, if in effect, like Uncle Tomizing her. Well, Bettina Epthecker, who was one of the leaders of the student left movement when it began in Berkeley, told me that she, there was a, a, the dean of students who caused all the crisis when she said that the student leftists couldn't have their free speech and their anti-war demonstration and they, think, they had their little booths and things they wanted to set up, and it was some place where you weren't supposed to set booths up. And so she said no, and then they went crazy, and they had the whole free speech movement. But she said the dean herself was actually very kind to them. And mm. even when they were sitting in, in her office, she would say, thank you so much for leaving that little opening so people can come through. That's very kind of you. I appreciate it. Mm. And she knew her all her life. And when the dean finally wound up in a nursing home much, much, much later, Bettina Apthecker would come and bring her flowers because she just so had admired her and liked, loved the way she treated them. So there's little bits of those stories everywhere. If it's not too peripatetic of me, I want to jump back to plastic surgery and to this question of kind of 
who defines how women get to be older, like how they get to be in their older years, what's what what is allowed. Um, and it's tricky, right? Because, you know, you have this massive advertising industry pushing, you know, hair dye, pushing makeup, pushing well, and then plastic surgery as well. But then there's also an argument that can be made by women to say, you know, who are you to tell me that I have no right to look younger if I wish to? It's it's Who's a perfectly it's a perfectly there? good discussion and argument. And I I think the important thing is that we should all have that discussion and argument. What what do these things mean? What does right. it mean that we do this stuff? What does it mean? Obviously, everybody wants to look as healthy and you know robust, chipper and yeah. robust as they possibly can. But, but uh, there's this thing like throughout the history of like whether one should age gracefully, whether or whether you know whether like natural versus right. unnatural. That's it's sort of um like an ideal ideological bent. Through. Yeah, and and certain people just do look better when they get older than other people do. I mean, Gloria Steinem has never had plastic surgery. Chimney crickets. I mean, she looks fantastic. But and other people don't. Other people look really old, but they look really old in a really co- good way. Wise and either wise or <laughs> self confident right. or cheerful or just you know sort of attractive in the the aura they give off. Uh, and some women do truly think that they need for their jobs to look not old because they still want to keep getting promoted and stuff. And that's true of men. I mean, it's not like men don't, you know, dye their hair or, you know, do other stuff now to to make themselves look younger. So I I guess you would you would agree or argue that it is harder, has always been harder for women, (laughs) older Mm. women than older men. Well, Nora Ephron had (laughs) a theory, which I think is one of the great encompassing theories of the history of women in the world, which is that the reason everything is different for women today when they're older is not because of politics or because of feminism. It's because of hair dye. And once you could change your hair color easily and naturally at it was, I forget, it was, the, it was the 70s, I think. With a 10-year period, you started your decade where it really looked weird, kind of. It might have been the 60s. But anyway, there was and a 10-year period. And at one point, period. it was poisonous, of course. It was poisonous. Yeah. And it looked, I mean, the problem was it looked terrible. Women tried to dye their hair <laughs> earlier, but it looked ridiculous. And there was good old Dolly Madison, who was really great at this stuff, would wear this cap that enclosed her entire hair. And then there'd be three little phony black curls sticking out of it. And that's all you like saw. Like one of those Rasta, like, beanie with, with dreads you can buy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in her a different version, context. Yes, it was yeah. exactly her version. <laughs> so you, you just couldn't do it. It, was, it wasn't for want of trying. Uh, it wasn't because people thought it was immoral. It was because it didn't look good. Right. But then suddenly, you know, within a very short period of time, you get these do loving care things that work really, really well. And you can do it in your own home. And within 10 years, you go from 7% of the women in the country coloring their hair to a point where they had to take hair color off the United States passport because it was just changing so fast all over the place. Yeah. And I mean, before that, it was like there was there was a point when it was literally poisonous. It was full of lead. And then but also there was a very strong cultural scorn of dying, like it was this 
foreign witchcraft yeah. designed to trap husbands. Yeah, that was thing, a right? long period yeah. throughout <laughs> our history in which constantly state legislatures, which you can always count on to do something very weird, were constantly bringing up bills <laughs> making it illegal to use hair dye or cosmetics under the theory that you were tricking men into marrying you not knowing how old you were. Which, when they were full of lead and arsenic, was probably actually so in the in the time that remains to us, I want to do this other thing where we're going to look at a couple of we're going to listen to a couple of short clips from a recent episode, which was with Liz Plank, who's a who's a millennial writer and she's been a anchor on Vox and Vox Media, and she's written a book about masculinity, and I just think that might take us in some interesting directions. Great. I think that it is really important that we fight to make room for mm. people to express and live yeah. whatever their kind of sexuality and gender yeah. is, wherever they fall right. there, and not trap them. I was one of those boys, by the way, who wanted an easy bake oven oh. desperately, and like oh, I, I, I like so many, there's so many people I, listening I, right I, now. Like I think if someone <laughs> bought were... me an easy bake oven now, I would like fall weeping to the floor. Like I, I like I want. <laughs> a damn easy bake oven you know what like i've decided that's my 50th birthday you present you should do that <laughs> have an easy bake oven par like theme party if they still make them i'm getting a goddamn oh, easy bake oven i'm so proud of you for doing that you that might be very a very transformative beautiful ritual you can do for yourself for real the cookies are not as good as you think they are I, I but they're a little watery yeah i mean it's cooked they with the little light pies bulb. i thought just, too but yeah, yeah yeah i mean i remember half of the time i'd pull it out and it was still just liquid <laughs> and i was like okay i'm i guess i'll drink the cookies we need to transform our society. And we did it really quickly with women. Not that, oh my God, we're not there yet. Um, <laughs> right, this is the unfinished gender revolution. And as long as we have this unfinished gender revolution, it's actually a tax on women. It's a tax on girls. It's obviously a tax on men and boys too, but it just, it doesn't benefit anyone for us to just have this one-sided view where girls can act more like boys and it's badass, it's cool. Right. But if boys act like girls, it's not. And that comes back to the feminine and male energy, right? We've diminished such important, quote unquote, traditional feminine qualities of collaboration, of empathy, of compassion. Those are the things that we need more of in our society, right? And the fact that we put them, we place them in the hierarchy as below the male characteristics is not just bad for women, it's bad for men, it's bad for everyone. When I look always at these things, I get so always back to the question of economics and who makes the money and my whole vision of the women thing changing. And even the Me Too movement, to a great degree, comes out of the fact that women are now in places with men where they weren't before. Right. Where men have so many more grabbing opportunities <laughs> in the course of a day right. than they used to. And they have powers now that they didn't have to stop these things from happening. It's it's a very Women natural, have powers, yeah. you know, like platforms. Right. And, and you know, if you're a woman in a job, you now have the ability to go to somebody and say, this is going on. And they instantly, I mean, and what the nice thing about the whole Me Too movement is, is that there's no downside to it really economically. It's not like right. really anybody sat back and said, oh, no, if we can't let them grab, we'll never get any more good guys in the building. I mean, it's just not never going to happen like that. Right. It's, and, and so it's, it's working out fine in so many ways. And as it moves along like that, the whole thing... It, it, 
every time women get freer, men get freer too to do the stuff they didn't get to do right. before. And we've talked before about men can now stay home and take care of kids and nobody thinks that's weird or unusual or anything else. And men have jobs now that they could never do before because nobody thinks it's unusual now that men bake. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> bake things all right. the time. I mean, it, and that, it just... It's a different issue. It's a different fight because it's so intertwined with feelings about sexuality. But it's all coming together in so many ways. Yeah, because, I mean, these things, they're temperamental. I mean, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, about like, isn't there also room for older women who just want to chill and read a book, yeah. you know, kind of thing. You know, there are going to be men that are better suited temperamentally to more traditionally feminine occupations, activities, ways of being, and vice versa. The fact that opportunities exist for women doesn't mean that all women are going to be Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And all women do not wish to be Elizabeth Cady <laughs> <Right>. Stanton. <laughs> right. The sad part of this whole story is you see all these things happening, and I tell people all the time, oh my God, in my lifetime, I lived to see a transformation in the role of women in Western civilization that's never been seen before in history. It's a whole entire that's gender right. That's right. whose lives were transformed completely. And I got to see all that happening up close. And that's the best gift you could possibly have. And now the same things are happening with gender and with sex and with everything, except money. Hmm. It's only working out really well for all the people with all all the women, all the gay people, all the transgender people. It's working out for everybody who's got hmm. money. And yeah. it's not working out for people who are poor because their basic problem is not any of those things. It's being poor. Yeah, we had some pretty intense and fitful stabs at that. We had Karl Marx. We had the communist revolution around the world. But those problems were not solved. That is definitely an unfinished revolution. And right now, we're not trying. I right, mean, you know, right. We've went through many parts of our history in which you know, Obamacare was not a valiant success, but there was a movement and a, a general agreement that there was something we wanted to change in this so people weren't deprived of health care because they were poor or made bankrupt forever because they needed health care. And now that's everything is not happening right now, but it's we think of it as a brief time in our history that will pass. I yeah, hope. I would hope so. I mean we never we never know what's going to happen, but I feel it feels to me like the fault lines are pretty serious and that there has to be movement on some of Well, I spent my whole life covering politics and I've never, ever, ever seen anything like this. Ever, 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 ever. On the plus side, <laughs> you never have to worry about what you're going to write about the next day. But other than that, boy, what a time. I want to say that that is one interesting thing about your writing. Uh, you know, I read your, your Times column always and you're able to maintain a, I don't know how to describe it. You have a sense of humor that is not I wouldn't call nasty or snarky in any way. Like you're, Thank you're, you. you're not, you're, no, I mean, you're critical where you need to be and you're super sharp, but somehow you keep it light, even though it's so damn heavy. Well, you know, when I was way long ago, when I was, I think I was still probably at the Daily News, but I was doing local columns and all these bad things were happening in the city, thousands of bad things. Every day I would write another column about, oh my God, this is terrible, this is terrible. <laughs> and then one day I thought, God, I don't want to make people want to throw themselves out the window. <laughs> right. I let this, maybe there's a way to talk about these things without making people suicidally depressed. While at the same time taking them seriously yeah. enough that movement right. can happen, right? Yes. And, and so that's what I tried to do all my career. 
it's a little different now. You just really are trying to keep people from jumping out the window. But And Donald Trump never thought I was funny. I have to say that. Never enjoyed my sense of humor. <laughs> Way back in the 90s, when he was an economically troubled real estate developer, he came before the city council tried to get some deal for something. And uh, I was covering city council then. I wrote about it, and I called him America's most famous thousandaire. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end for, that, you, for, well, for your relationship with Donald he Trump. He sent me back a copy of the column with my picture circled, and it had a little arrow at it. It said, you are a dog with the face of a pig. No wonder you are angry. I would be too. And he misspelled too. Wow. And when I got it, first we didn't think it was real. And I took it to one of, one of the other people in the office, and we know this. This must be some joke by somebody who knows him or somebody in the office. So we checked it against his filings that we had on file, you know, real estate filings. And it was it's with the Sharpie. It was, oh, you would, you could look at it now. You would know what we got. Well, something, so, it's good to know that some things never change. Some things never change. <laughs> I was going to throw the little sucker out. And then my husband saw it and said, oh my God, you've got to save this. This is so ridiculous. This will be worth something someday. It's worth a lot now, I can tell you. <laughs> But my family says we have to keep it in the family as a legacy item. Actually, I have it up in the office. <laughs> I thought you might. Yep, okay. Yep. I thought you might. <laughs> Gail Collins, thank you so much for coming on Think Again today. This was great. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And Gail's book is No Stopping Us Now, A History of Older Women in America. And it is available everywhere now. And that's our show for the week. If you've been listening for a while, you might have noticed that I'm experimenting with something new, using clips from previous episodes as conversation starters instead of Big Think videos, making more explicit some of the invisible threads in this ongoing conversation. Let me know what you think about this or anything else by emailing me through my website, jasongotts.com. You can also sign up there for occasional emails from me. That's jasongotts.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S. I'll be back next week with something totally different, and I hope you'll be back too. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.